A quick note before the show. We're trying something new. You can now text us. The future is here. We'll send you new episode reminders, updates from the pod, and maybe even some history trivia. So share your musings, pitch us an idea, or ask us questions. I should also say that this is not a chat bot. A real podcast will be texting you back. Our phone number is 917-810-3294. It's also linked in our Twitter bio. So head to at EclipsePod over there to learn more. Okay, that's all. On to the show. So to be absolutely clear, he definitely did it, right? I mean, this isn't really the point, but like... <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way. I wrote an introduction in which I just say flat out... Sarah Weinman is an author who writes about true crime, obscure stuff that's stranger than fiction and sometimes more unsettling. Her latest book, Scoundrel, takes on the case of a mid-century murderer. But the story is really about how Edgar Smith went free. So I had first, I think, heard of this story maybe in like 2013, early 2014. And it was the kind of thing where I just was floored that people didn't know this in a, in a major way. This story takes place in Bergen County, New Jersey. And weirdly, it's not one of a kind. They knew a similar account of a well-known author and pundit who had advocated for a convicted criminal and their literary talents. And by that, I mean Norman Mailer and Jack Henry Abbott, which became a huge to-do, especially when on the very day that Abbott's book, In the Belly of the Beast, got a rave review from the New York Times, he was being arrested for killing a man in a bar the night before and would eventually serve the rest of his life in prison. Edgar Smith's story and how he became acquainted with and then friends with William F. Buckley just didn't seem to have the same traction. I, I actually felt that the story was kind of worse. From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. Today, we're going through a wormhole with author Sarah Weinman, who's here to tell the story of Edgar Smith, a murderer who was so charming, he convinced everyone up to a judge that he wasn't, in fact, the culprit. And he managed all this in public. Buckle up, it's gonna be a wild ride. Okay, so let's talk about Edgar Smith. Who is this guy? Well, I guess we have to start with who Edgar Smith was in 1957, which was kind of the shiftless, somewhat itinerant, ne'er-do-well. He was married. He and his wife had a two-month-old baby at home. They lived in a trailer park. He had been in the army. He had been the product of divorced parents. He'd been in and out of various schools. So this wasn't someone who was living a particularly stable life. And then a 15-year-old girl named Victoria Zielinski is supposed to be walking home from her best friend's house in Mawa, New Jersey. And she's supposed to meet up with her younger sister, Myrna, at sort of the halfway point. But Vicky doesn't show up, and Myrna walks home alone and has to tell her family that her older sister has gone missing. The family, in tandem with the police, soon find Vicky's body, and it's been smashed in with a rock and really just a horribly brutal murder. And it becomes front page news in New York, in New Jersey, eventually all over the country. 
And within about 24 hours, Edgar Smith, who knew Vecchi, I mean, it's a small town, so this is not unusual, but he's arrested and the circumstantial evidence looks pretty good. And so there's a trial and Edgar was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. Okay, so he's on death row. His execution date is scheduled some, sometime in the future. Yes. Um, the first death sentence comes down in June of 1957. There was a real instance about a year later when Edgar was about 30 hours from going to the electric chair. So there was this period of about five years where Edgar was really quite literally fighting for his life. Executions would be stayed. He would go through the state system. He'd go through the federal system. He would have different lawyers. His mother was paying for various defense attorneys to help out in all sorts of quarters. And his marriage to his first wife ultimately ends, and she remarries and moves out west and would prefer not to be heard from again, although that doesn't turn out to be quite the case. So it isn't until about 1962 when Edgar gives an interview with a friend of his who writes for a local Jersey paper. It's a very friendly interview. And at one point he mentions that he had had access to a magazine called National Review, but that the warden who had supplied it had been moved so he no longer had it anymore. And that's how Smith meets William F. Buckley Jr., the magazine's founder. Both Buckley and the National Review are quite famous in the conservative establishment. It's basically the movement's intellectual engine. Buckley himself memorably described the journal's mission like this. National Review stands athwart history, yelling stop, at a time when no one is inclined to do so. At this point in the 60s, the journal is gaining more national prominence, and Buckley's getting more famous as a result. And he had written various pieces that were, you know, pretty virulently racist. And there's no mm -hmm. getting around that. He wrote a, an op-ed for the National Review called How the South Must Prevail that was extremely controversial and still is a pretty horrible read, and then tried to double down and then try to kind of go around it. So these are the things that were happening in sort of National Review land. William F. Buckley at the time was not quite as prominent as he would be in subsequent years. This was before the firing line. This was before his run for mayor. So this clipping gets the attention first of a different writer at the magazine who decides to write a piece about Edgar Smith's case and comes to the conclusion that this may actually be a wrongful conviction. And so Buckley starts to kind of get involved. He writes letters, Edgar writes him back. And over the course of about three years, they really do develop this friendship by letter to the point where in 1965, as he's finishing up his ultimately unsuccessful but PR heavy run for mayor, but he's also writing this article for Esquire all about the Edgar Smith case. And he donates his fee to a new legal defense fund and people start contributing money. And this sort of starts the snowball for thinking that Edgar actually did not kill Vicky Zielinski and that some other guy didn't. So with William F. Buckley, he never wanted to base his friendships on ideology and often preferred to be friends with people whose political views he disagreed with. So the fact that he could have these friends who were in artistic circles or who were liberals and often skied with them or went on sailing vacations. I mean, his whole life was just 
It was like straight out of an Evil and Law novel or something. But it's also important that because of those qualities that produced so many blind spots, one of them being who is the beneficiary of this largesse. Like the fact that someone like Edgar Smith, whom he viewed as having literary talent, that got his attention. But if it had been a, like a poor black guy, that would never have gotten Buckley's attention. And not just because he was racist. Correct. Okay, so we're, we're at like 1965. Small magazines are like at the height of their power, culturally speaking. The National Review is one of these magazines. They, they get connected. And in the meantime, Edgar publishes a book. So how did that happen? Like, what was, what was the story there? So when Buckley wrote his piece for Esquire magazine, one of the people who wrote in asking to donate to this legal defense fund and also inquiring as to whether Edgar had some kind of literary project going on. So this editor was a woman named Sophie Wilkins. She was a fascinating figure. She had emigrated from Vienna. She had gone to Columbia University and studied and then worked for Lionel Trilling. And so when she got wind of this Esquire piece, she thought maybe there's something there. So there was one like initial formal exchange, but then nothing happened. And then Edgar lets Buckley know that he is in fact writing a nonfiction book about his legal situation and essentially trying to get his way out of prison. And so Buckley contacts Sophie, since they had already been in touch over this legal defense stuff, and says, Edgar Smith is working on a book. Let me put you in touch. This is sort of the moment things kick into high gear for Smith. He's got the ear of one of the most prominent public intellectuals in the country. He's also got a major publishing house interested in his literary project. That would be incredible for anyone, but for a convicted murderer on death row, it's nothing short of astonishing. By early 1967, they are in fact in touch, and initially the letters between them are above board, they're professional, they're just like prospective author, talking to prospective editor, talking about agents, talking about the business. And then things start to get a little weird. Mm-hmm, how so? Well. Edgar just starts slipping in little details alluding to, oh, Sophie must be beautiful and making comments about her vacations and how she might be hooking up with some Greek fellow and then intimating that they should travel together. It gets to the point where they're exchanging incredibly racy, like NC-17 level correspondence, not through official channels because Usually, if you were corresponding with a death row prisoner, they were only allowed to write on a single piece of paper both sides. If it exceeded that, there'd be trouble. But to get around it, if you sent things through your lawyer, that was exempt. So he would send stuff through his state lawyer, not telling him what it was. And then Sophie would also use the state lawyer to send back similar epics. And this went on for a while. But a relationship like this it is pretty combustible. So as they were essentially carrying on this torrid epistolary affair, they were also working on what became the manuscript for Brief Against Death. But then the book comes out as late 1968, and Buckley is, of course, the biggest advocate and PR guy of all. He goes on The Tonight Show, he goes on other late-night talk shows and other nationally syndicated television shows. And there's just this groundswell of positive opinion for this book in which Edgar Smith 
categorically denies killing Victoria Zelensky and putting the blame on another person. How is Edgar as a writer? Like, is is he really that charming? Because <sighs> this is this is like a succession of people that he's like convinced that he didn't do this thing that he very clearly did. There's an element of charm in his letters, and I found myself kind of getting ensorcelled at times. With Brief Against Death, I think it really benefited from Sophie Wilkins' edits. But if you were a regular reader encountering Brief Against Death in 1968, totally cold, you would walk away thinking, oh yeah, something is up. Most people walked away thinking he was totally innocent, including, I think, people who were reviewing it, like the crime writer Ross MacDonald, who reviewed it for the New York Times, just basically saying, well, I think there's something here, and I, I'm not sure that he did it. It's just like, come on, come on man. <laughs> like, how are you not seeing this? You write crime novels, and yet. <laughs> Oh, how did this not like, I mean, he he gets a new trial, right? How does this, how does this not poison the jury pool? So he gets a new trial, but it's very clear that as you just described, any jury that would be assembled would be tainted. Like they wouldn't be able to make anything work. So it was just agreed upon that he would plead guilty to second degree murder. He'd get time served because by that point he had served almost 15 years on death row. And at, mm-hmm. in the early seventies, it was perfectly okay to kill someone and get 15 years or even less for that crime. And it was and I think it's also it's a slight aside but this was all happening as there were major discussions and debates and court rulings about whether the death penalty was cruel and unusual mm-hmm. and in 1972 there'd be a decision that would call it cruel and unusual and vacate the death penalty which wouldn't come back for another 4 years. So here's the situation. Smith has become a national figure in his own right because of Buckley's attention. The conservative intellectual has set the death row prisoner up with big shot lawyers and a new legal defense fund. On top of that, there's a book deal in the works with Alfred A. Knopf, one of the biggest publishers in America. So how that happens is, Brief Against Death comes out, and then in November of 1968, the Supreme Court rules that there should be a new hearing to see if Edgar's confession was coerced. A couple of years pass, and then the confession is indeed thrown out, and um, he is granted a new trial. And so what he and the Bergen County prosecutors work out is that he will plead guilty and get essentially time served for second-degree murder. So he has to admit in court that he murdered Victoria Zielinski. So he does that in the sort of faint, audible voice. And then as soon as that legal proceeding is over, he gets into a limo and William F. Buckley is there and they eat roast beef sandwiches and they toast on champagne and they go straight across the river to a recording studio to tape two episodes of The Firing Line. The first of which is just Buckley and Smith talking and Smith just basically says, eh, I said what I had to say to get out of prison, but essentially denies that he killed Vicky. So even though he said it in court... He denies it on television. So Firing Lines is like a very famous TV show. Tell me more about the context. It's an evening talk show and Buckley would sit in one chair and usually be like super slouch. And a guest of some renown would appear. Sometimes it would be a panel. It was this very like intellectual, kind of slow going. It wasn't like Crossfire. It wasn't like current cable news of the day. It was very sedate. Our guest tonight is Edgar Smith. 
He was discharged an hour and a half. So by the time that he and Edgar Smith appear together, the show's been on for five years, and it's kind of established. Like by 1971, Buckley was a very established pundit and person in the conservative movement. And of course, Mm -hmm. his stature would only rise as Nixon came to power and then was forced from power, and then Reagan, and then the Bushes. So he really just sort of like entrenched himself over the course of this time. Right. But it's it's also like very good image management, right? Like I helped get a guy out of jail who did not actually commit this murder because, you know, he's saying that this other guy did it. But but I think that if you had said to Buckley, is this image management, he would have denied it. And I I'm actually inclined to believe him because there was this weird sincerity to how he approached all this. And I think he genuinely considered Edgar a friend in Hindsight and in context, it seems impossible because at least reading the correspondence, it was very clear to me that Edgar was kind of snowing him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And what what is the first thing he does after firing line? So after taping the first episode with Buckley alone, then there's a second episode with a number of journalists, including one from the New York Times and one from the Philadelphia Bulletin. And they immediately challenge him on, wait a minute, you admitted to killing Vicky in court, and now you're going on TV and saying that you didn't do it? Like, isn't this perjury what's going on? And then Buckley kind of steps in and is like, we can't discuss the co- the substance of the case. It's like, oh, wow. But there, there were some real tension and um, fireworks happening. Afterwards, they finish the taping, the episodes are going to air, and then they all head back to Buckley's maisonette on the Upper East Side for a little party. Smith is quickly ensconced in this new strata of society. His friends are famous, he's in a new relationship, he has press following him around, and he's out of prison. He spends his first night out at the St. Regis. Though he can't sleep because on death row they leave the lights on all night, and the darkness of a hotel room is new to him. So there is this period after his release when he's living in New York and he's on the public speaking circuit talking about criminal justice issues and he's trying to finish the manuscript for his next nonfiction book called Getting Out, which would be published in early 73. And by that point, that's when the decline starts to happen. After serving 14 years on death row, Edgar Smith is now a free man. That said, I think it's important to point out a historical quirk of his case. While the appeal that won Smith his freedom relied on his newfound fame and his new lawyers, it wasn't just Buckley's efforts that got Smith out of prison. Smith's successful appeal relied on the argument that his confession had been obtained under duress, eight years before the Miranda decision came down from the Supreme Court. It's this idea that those who were arrested have rights and they should be apprised of those rights as soon as detectives or law enforcement interrogating them believe that they are going to make an arrest or that they're going to detain them in some fashion so that they will know that they do have the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney. But if they're not told of that, then anything that they say, especially confession, is not admissible in court. And at the same time, American society was becoming more radical about the idea of prison reform. 
Edgar Smith gets off death row in 1971. In 1972, the Supreme Court rules the death penalty unconstitutional. The year after that, in 1973, Edgar Smith publishes another book called Getting Out, a book about his experiences in court. So jumping back to 73, Getting Out's published. Buckley reads it and doesn't like it. He thinks that there's something wrong with it. Whatever magic that Brief Against Death had, this does not have. There's like a coarseness in Edgar that he didn't detect before, even though it was very much there. But Buckley somehow was blind and didn't see it. And so the commissions start drying up, the freelance work goes away, the speaking engagements start to disappear. Eventually, Edgar will meet the woman who becomes his second wife, who is about 20 years younger than him and very inexperienced and looks younger than her 19 years. They move out west to San Diego and there are money problems, there are drug problems. And then by 76, just Edgar's prospects are drying up and all of the same impulses that led to his rage in killing Vicky are just back again. He's at loose ends, he can't find work, he's being supported, he doesn't feel like a man. And so one day he takes his car and looking for opportunity, he sees a woman emerge from a parking lot of, from the place he works and he kidnaps her. He cracks. Edgar Smith stabs a woman after he's forced her into his car. She had just been window shopping and was on her way home. Edgar's driving, she fights back, and they roll off the highway down an exit ramp. She manages to make it out of his car into a hospital, and she will live for another 43 years. Meanwhile, Smith makes a break for it. At this point, he hasn't even been out of prison for five years. It was very harrowing, and she came within millimeters of a knife wound from dying. And so Edgar's on the run. And Buckley gets wind of this, and so do all of his friends and lawyers and other people who are involved in the saga. And they're sort of on tenterhooks. Is Edgar going to return? Is he going to try to reach out to them? Right, right. But he's he's like a minorly famous person, right? Yeah, but he's like trying to alter his appearance. He's grown a mustache. He's like dressing a little differently. This is a classic case of there was no internet in 1976. There was no social media. There was no, but it's like there was just, there was a delay. There was a lag. Edgar Smith makes it to Vegas where he calls Buckley for help. Except this time, Buckley calls the FBI. And so the FBI descend upon a hotel room in Vegas where Edgar is registered under a false name and arrests him. There will be an arraignment, there will be a trial, there will be a conviction, and he will serve the rest of his life in prison. Huh. Do you think there was a like a lesson here? I think it's a testament to how we want to believe in something and in someone and if they have talent, that somehow that should supersede their character and their behavior. But the reason I wrote Scoundrel the way that I did is to say, we need to interrogate and maybe discard this whole way of thinking. That what people like Buckley valued is not actually important. What, what is important are the lives, in particular, of girls and women who are harmed by men like these. And just because they might have perceived literary merit doesn't mean that that overcomes the actual lives that these other people who are harmed by them lead or are incapable of leading because they've been murdered by them or sexually assaulted by them. 
or violently abused by them. But at the same time, I think it's just a larger look at how the American criminal justice system ends up working, whether it should work by that way or it shouldn't work by that way. But it doesn't make anyone look good, frankly. And I I just wanted to take a deeper, harder look at how criminal justice system ought to be and how it ends up not being so often and still. Right. That makes total sense. The case feels emblematic in a way. Yeah, it's a very mid-century story. And I think that even the people sort of coming in and out of the narrative, especially the number of notable writers who are intimately or tangentially involved in this story, they're very much part of the American mid-century. It's like, this is the time that we're supposed to call the great time. It wasn't that great. Edgar Smith dies in prison in 2017. He's outlived William F. Buckley, his book editor, the woman he stabbed in his car, and, of course, Vicky Zielinski, the woman he killed. Special thanks to Sarah Weinman. Her book Scoundrel is out now, and you can get it wherever you get your books. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by Tanidi Rahmani, Lane Gerbig, and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scheer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsedPod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Bijan Cakes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.